This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I'm supposed to be the host, but you are actually doing the hosting, dear listener. And for that, we thank you. As usual, we have too much ground to cover, and I don't know how we're going to even try to do it. Yours truly was lucky enough to be able to attend a most interesting symposium slash conference in San Francisco last Saturday. And although Mr. McMillan was very disappointed by this event because he looked up symposium and found out that it was supposed to be a drinking party. So he sure was disappointed when he showed up and there wasn't a drop of liquor in sight. But uh, it was a rather sober subject we were talking about uh, last Saturday, which was again a look at the murder of the 35th President of the United States, a topic we've talked about frequently, and we'll do so a bit again today in Segment 3. Dr. Peter Dale Scott was in attendance, and his description of deep politics and how it pervades uh, so many of the events that have taken place over the last generation or two, uh, summarized, I think, in his new book, and we're hoping to bring him on the program sometime in December. But a guy whose chat we're actually going to uh, excerpt in our third segment today was that of political activist and lawyer, Bill Simpich. The San Francisco attorney had some provocative things to say about the case, or rather the strength of the case, against the alleged assassin Lee Harvey Oswald. And during his talk, revealed some data which was quite new to me and left me rather flabbergasted. But we'll, we'll talk about that in segment three, so there's, there's a reason to stick around for a little longer. In our second segment, we're going to take a look at money and its interface with politics. And uh, more than that, how so often the pursuit of the almighty dollar leads us down the wrong road. Don't worry, we won't get too philosophical about it. We're just going to deal with some examples and, and then comment upon them. All right, let's start today's program as we like to do with, on this date in history, our date today is the 20th of November. Some days are pretty eventful, some days less so. Today's date, I'd have to say, is... Less so. Although it was on November 20th in 1818 that Simon Bolivar formally declared Venezuelan independence from Spain. On November 20th in 1866, James L. Haven and Charles Herrick of Cincinnati received the first U.S. patent for the yo-yo. And on this date in 1888, William Bundy was issued the first U.S. patent for a time card clock. On November 20th in 1902, Georges Lefebvre and Henri Desgrange created the Tour de France bicycle race. And finally, it was on November 20th in 1923 that the American inventor Garrett Morgan patented the automatic traffic signal. He was distressed after seeing an automobile crash into a horse-drawn carriage, and that prompted his invention. If you ask me, I think this whole day was stuck at a red light. Our quote of the day comes from Winston Churchill, who said, Tact is the ability to tell someone to go to hell in such a way that they look forward to the trip. Our quip of the day comes from an anonymous source. But it's too good to pass up. Said Anonymous, his great aim was to escape from civilization, and as soon as he had money, he went to Southern California. Our anecdote of the day is as follows. Reportedly, a vain and corpulent actress confessed to Abbe Munier that she occasionally looked at her naked body in the mirror. She demurely inquired with the abbe, Is it a sin? 
Eyeing her portly figure, he responded, No, madame, it's an error. All right, for the joke of the day, we have a little uh, some e-card forwarded to me on Facebook by my friend Colleen. It shows two smiling women having tea, and the caption says, Best of luck explaining why you're still single at Thanksgiving and Charles Manson isn't. And speaking of Facebook, we want to thank our good friend James Israel for posting this one, which will serve as our stat of the day. Noted James, Washington works pretty well if you're a big corporation like GE. Three parts. What General Electric spent on campaigns and lobbying for the past five years? $159 million. What GE gained from taxpayers and federal support in that same period? $19.6 billion with a B. And finally, what their federal tax rate was over the last six years? Negative 9%. Yes, General Electric got money back from the government. I don't know. If corporations are persons, how come those persons aren't paying their taxes? And I guess our bonus stat is that 81% of Americans, according to a recent poll, are in favor of overturning Citizens United, one of the epically bad Supreme Court decisions of all time, which gave corporations so-called free speech rights to spend as much money as they want on political campaigns. Oh, and one final stat. Apparently, according to QZ.com, to date... The American Red Cross has raised $3.7 million for the Ebola relief effort in West Africa, which is nice. But by comparison, the American Red Cross raised $2.18 billion after Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005. And the 2011 earthquake and tsunami in Japan garnered $312 million. I think we can do better in this Ebola effort. Of course, I guess that means you and me, dear listener. We should probably contribute. Making contributions to worthy causes is something I think we should think about in this holiday season. I received a solicitation uh, a week or two ago from Cheeseman's Adventure Travel to donate something to fight the efforts in Tanzania to pave a road into the Serengeti National Park. I think this access road will be sure to have a very bad effect on the wildlife of Africa, and so I made a contribution, and I hope you'll consider doing so as well, dear listener. Or to any worthy cause you think you could help. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, which is the most often used source for these items. It was a good week last week for the adaptive power of capitalism. After fashion designers in China responded to the country's horrific air pollution by staging a runway show in which the models wore stylish oxygen masks. It was, on the other hand, a bad week this week for showboating. With the news that after Utah wide receiver Kalen Clay dropped the ball before crossing the goal line as he celebrated what would have been a 79-yard touchdown, the Oregon defenders picked up the ball and returned it 99 yards for their touchdown. And it was an ugly week last week for getting help from the wait staff. 
with the story that novice wine drinker Joe Latini was having a business dinner at a steakhouse in Atlantic City and told the waitress he knew little about wine and asked her, quote, to recommend something decent, unquote. At which point she suggested a 2011 bottle of Screaming Eagle, telling him it cost $3,750. Imagine his surprise when the bill came and it was $3,750, not $37.50. Lentini complained, I can imagine, and the restaurant apparently grudgingly reduced the price to $2,200. I guess when reporters asked him, how is the wine? He responded, it wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. It was fine. Times get rough. I ain't got enough. Buy me a bottle of wine. Yeah. Bottle of wine. When you gonna let me get And it was both a bad and ugly week. Last week for not only public health, but I guess public safety as well. With the news that crash test dummies are now getting fatter to address the fact that obese people are 78% more likely to die in a car crash. Dummies have been modeled on a person weighing 167 pounds, but the new prototype weighs 273 with a body mass index of 35. That's according to CNN.com. All right, let's do a bunch of follow-up. We neglected to note that they did capture that mayor down in Mexico, Jose Luis Albarca, mayor of Iguala. He was on the payroll of Guerreros Unidos, United Warriors, which is a drug-running operation. In fact, both he and his wife were top operatives in the gang. The mayor ordered the local police to arrest students who were protesting a speech by, uh, by his wife, Maria Pineda, whose brother, I guess, ran the local cartel. It was the police who handed the students over to the gang, which murdered them all. This horrible story is a direct consequence of the insane, unwinnable war on drugs we continue to throw money at. Don't you wish we had a president that would want to do something about this nonsense? It's sad. None of them seem to want to, including the current occupant of the Oval Office. In other Latin America news, we have this. Sao Paulo, the largest city in South America is experiencing the worst drought in a century. A series of record dry seasons have left Sao Paulo's reservoirs down to just 10% of capacity, and the city's 20 million residents are struggling with water rationing. Now, scientists say the dry spell appears to be the direct result of deforestation in the Atlantic forest and the Amazon. The vapor from rainforests produce clouds that waft inland and rain on the city, and as the forest disappears, so does the moisture. Climatologist Antonio Nobre was quoted as saying, if deforestation in the Amazon continues, Sao Paulo will probably dry up. It's worthy of noting that according to the piece by Adriana Gomez-Licon, which appeared at the B on this topic, reportedly the state's water distribution network in the state of Sao Paulo loses 30% of its resources to leaks. Critics of the government have also noted that the government ignored calls to begin rationing water months ago because it didn't want to take such a step before the October elections. In some smaller cities near Sao Paulo, the taps have actually gone dry. And you wonder if that's going to happen here in California because recent uh, computer modelings about how our climate may change in the wake of uh, global warming shows that um, the Sierra Mountains are likely to see more rain in the future in place of snow. Rain is sure to evaporate and leach away more rapidly than snow. And, uh, well... 
They're estimating that by the year 2050, the snowpack could be one-third smaller than it is now. And this week, the California Department of Water Resources launched its latest multi-billion dollar plan to manage water. The goals of the plan are to make conservation a way of life, according to the department. I wonder if we might start with those portions of California which receive water that has to be pumped over the Tehachapi Mountains, which currently takes one-fifth of California's electricity. And if we're talking about water in California, and we are, we ought to refer you to the excellent article in the Sacramento News and Review titled Flushing Money by Joe Rubin. Just quote from the start of the article, which is, This fall, workers from Tykert Construction, the company awarded the contract to install Sacramento's new water meters in Land Park, descended on the neighborhood. There are a lot of ways to describe the city's water meter plan. Low impact is not one of them. That caught my attention right away because Tykert is one of the giants of construction locally, and they're also a gold mining company, which, if the rumors are true and people tell me they are, Tykert makes all the money it needs out of gold mining. All their construction stuff is just gravy. But rather than excerpt the piece, I think I'm going to quote from an, an article from Eye on Sacramento, sent to us by Nancy, which summarizes it pretty well. To quote from the piece, allegedly by Craig Powell, We encourage you to read Mr. Rubin's full story. He's done an immense public service in bringing these matters to light. We agree on that. But noted, Eye on Sacramento, in a blockbuster cover story... Veteran investigative journalist Joe Rubin reports on his sixth-month investigation into massive waste in the city of Sacramento's program for installing water meters and new water mains. The crux of the story is that independent utility experts, utility officials in other California cities, and Sacramento's own city auditor have concluded that Sacramento is making two very bad and costly decisions. One. Sacramento is unnecessarily abandoning perfectly good backyard water mains and moving them to the streets. And two, Sacramento is needlessly tearing up city sidewalks to install state-mandated water meters in sidewalks instead of placing meters far less expensively in homeowners' yards. Evidently, this meter project in Sacramento is 50% complete, and our fair city is planning to spend $473 million on these two programs over 20 years, factoring inflation in. It's being financed with long-term bonds that will add another $400 million in costs on city ratepayers. Now, by comparison, the city of Fresno, which left backyard water mains intact and installed meters in homeowners' yards instead of sidewalks, installed the same number of water meters that Sacramento's installing, 100,000, in just two years at a cost of just $70 million, 15% of the cost of Sacramento's plan. But Rubin's story reveals so much more, including alleged misrepresentations by top utilities officials to the city council, of the findings of a key citizen focus group on their preferences for the location of water meters, also manipulation by a city engineer of the results of a, pur- a purportedly independent engineering study that was commissioned to assess that decision to abandon backyard water meters. And Rubin also revealed that one of the key proponents of the 2005 decision to abandon backyard water mains was then-Sacramento Water Superintendent Barry Holland, who pled guilty to federal bribery charges in 2008 after an FBI investigation revealed that he was accepting kickbacks for selling the city's used water meters to an unscrupulous contractor. The story also reveals that a city contractor installing meters and water mains has twice broken underground gas lines in the past two years, leading to home evacuations and, according to PG&E, the risk of home explosions. Rubin revealed that the director of the city's utilities department was entirely unaware of the gas line breaks until Rubin informed him of them. 
And since the story broke on November 13th, Ion Sacramento has received reports that two more gas line breaks in Land Park caused by city contractors, one on Thursday, one on Friday of last week, well, neither of which was reported by the local media. The piece then includes a call to action, which we cannot go into because we cannot do a call to action here on this radio station. But I imagine some of you are hot and bothered enough by this to want to do something, so read Joe Rubin's original piece. In the meantime, we'll see if we can't bring him on this show to talk about his article himself. Now, there's been plenty of hints and allegations here. We reported on them on this program that, um, that if somehow we water wasters in places like Sacramento would just, just conserve more, we could solve California's water problem, which is, on the face of it, utterly preposterous. The vast majority of California's water goes to agricultural and industrial uses. According to Jeffrey Mount, Emma Friedman, and Jay Lund at the Public Policy Institute of California, California's 9 million acres of irrigated farmland represent roughly 80% of all human water use. Water meters ain't going to get the job done. Now, we're not going to say that we're against all high-tech efforts to conserve water. We think some of them make sense, along with some low-tech solutions to the problem. The November 8th issue of New Scientist magazine in the technology section talks a little bit about both. They mention how when a water main broke under the Marina Bay Sands, which is a Singapore casino, um, the network of sensors in place spotted the sudden drop in water and allowed a team of engineers to be scrambled to fix uh, the problem before there was much damage. So in urban settings, that could be good. Evidently, scientific studies of water systems have shown that when breaks start in one area, they tend to propagate out like a disease. Evidently, down in Los Angeles in 2009, there was a cascade of burst water mains. And a water expert was quoted as saying, once there was a sudden disturbance in the system, the rest of it started to break right and left. One break allowed millions of liters to flood the campus of UCLA, submerging cars and creating spontaneous waterfalls in front of buildings. Turned out they couldn't find the valve to shut the pipes down. But noted the piece, not all solutions need to be high-tech. Las Vegas, sitting out in the Nevada desert as it does, has always been on a tight water budget, and its response has been to build a system that recycles nearly all water used indoors. Wastewater is captured, treated, then pumped into a specially created marsh called the Las Vegas Wash, which serves as a natural giant filter before emptying into Lake Mead. The city then draws quote-unquote new water from the lake, treats it, pumps it into homes and businesses, and the cycle continues. And it does turn out that wetlands, which have been so long scorned by urban developers, farmers, and just about everybody who doesn't like the way they look and smell, are in fact a vital part of the ecosystem. If you put uh, wastewater into this, the, the microbes in a wetlands area do wonders in purifying what comes to them. Another California water news, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, the Delta Tunnels project cost is apparently finally hitting home. This comes in the wake of a report by State Treasurer Bill Lockyer, which says that costs could double for a lot of state water customers if the Bay Delta Conservation Plan goes through. The article doesn't say so, but the Bay Delta Conservation Plan is a colossal fraud. And this might be a good time to mention that that opinion, like all those heard on this program does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But uh, that said, personally, I'm standing by fraud. 
But that report concluded that um, the $25 billion price tag is within the range of urban and agricultural users' capacity to pay. Of course, conservation groups have recently calculated that cost overruns are likely to leave California with a $67 billion bill when all is said and done. Cites Tom Stokely, water policy analyst for the California Water Impact Network, is noting that uh, the Central Valley Project, which was first authorized in 1935, serves as an example of how debt service can go beyond a district's ability to pay. The federal government recently proposed forgiving as much as $300 million in debt and giving the Westlands Water District a permanent water contract. Although this tunnel plan is supported by Governor Jerry Brown, it has been attacked by environmentalists, Delta farmers, and fishing groups who insist that, among other things, cost overruns would saddle water districts with more debt than they can afford. We'll continue to follow this one. All right, we didn't mention any good news in our earlier segment where we normally stick it, because I'm saving it for the end of the segment because I want to end on a high note. So here's a couple of what may be happy items. We've gotten our hands on the piece. Uh... Printed in the New York Times last November 9th about uh, a possible solution to global warming, or partial solution anyway. To quote from the piece by Henry Fountain, The solution to global warming, Olaf Schuling says, lies beneath our feet. For Dr. Schuling, a retired geochemist, climate salvation would come in the form of olivine, a green-tinted mineral found in abundance throughout the world. When exposed to the elements, it slowly takes on carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Dr. Schilling notes that olivine's been doing this naturally for billions of years, but he wants to speed up the process by spreading it on fields and beaches and using it for dikes, pathways, and even sandboxes. You know, this seems like a pretty good idea, provided we don't generate a lot of CO2 grinding up the olivine. Anyway, we'll have more to say about this and other methods of geoengineering in the future. This one sounds pretty benign to us. Certainly seems worth thinking about. And how about this one? In their October 18th issue, the editors of New Scientist note that you should probably think twice before condemning all oil rigs as a threat to nature. A submarine study has found that fish are 27 times more productive under oil rigs than on reefs off the coast of California. Studies conducted by Occidental College in L.A. noted that uh, when compared to previous studies, oil rigs were 10 times more productive than natural habitats elsewhere on Earth. And Jeremy Clace, who did the study, suggests that rigs are havens for fish because their huge surface area, which, unlike in reefs, spans the whole water column. Well, at any rate, it appears that we are stuck with offshore oil rigs. It's nice to know that at least they're doing some good ecologically. And on that note, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'd like to be under the sea In an octopus's garden in the shade He'd let us in, knows where we've been In his octopus's garden in the shade I'd ask my friend 